0: I turned 37 earlier this month. I have three very young kids who are going to be the end of me. Uh, Not only am I a millennial, I am reliably informed that my age cohort, born in the first half of the 1980s, are starting to be called geriatric millennials. It's time I admitted that I am no longer keyed into what is cool online. I joined Facebook in the spring of 2004, so I was once something of a trendy college kid. Fast forward about 15 years. In late 2019, I downloaded TikTok onto my phone, watched some videos of kids chucking two liter bottles of soda off of buildings, and then removed TikTok from my phone. So for a while now, I've wanted to do an episode on what Gen Z or Zoomers think of social media, how they use it, how it affects them, what's base, what's cringe, what's a Chad, and so on. Uh, I'm going to be the Steve Buscemi character in the meme going, how do you do, fellow kids? This is, of course, the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. I'm fortunate to be joined today by two guests who not only can tell me what's trendy, but can engage in a serious conversation about social media and public policy. So we're gonna be sure to do that too. Kier Nuthi is Public Affairs Manager at NetChoice, as well as a contributor for Young Voices. She recently had a piece at fortune.com on the importance of letting social media websites set their own content moderation policies. I look forward to discussing that one with her. Also here today is Tech Freedom's own Rachel Altman. She joined us a few months ago as our Director of Digital Media. It's great to have her both at the organization and on the show for the first time. Uh, Here, Rachel, it is great to have you both on.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, lovely to be here.
0: So uh, you two obviously cannot speak for all of Gen Z as the Lorax speaks for the trees, uh, but you can, you know, speak to your own experience. So I've dated myself uh, by briefly explaining my social media trajectory. Um, I, I will note briefly Facebook once had you know, the poke feature. And I, I, I will note, originally your wall on your profile could be edited by anybody. It was like a whiteboard, so other people could edit yet other people's posts, it was total chaos. So dating myself even further. Um, anyway, what's your experience with social media been and do you consider it representative of sort of early-ish Gen Zers?
2: Yeah, so I actually think that you're maybe more of the trendsetter Corbin in terms of Facebook, because you said that you first got on Facebook in 2004. I was not on Facebook in 2004, unfortunately, because I was in kindergarten, but I did get on Facebook later. So I believe that that was my first social media. And I joined when I was 13. I'm pretty sure my parents made my bat mitzvah the cutoff because they were like, in Judaism, you're an adult now. So I guess that you can have a social media account. That was maybe the reasoning.
0: I'm going to yeah. date myself once again. When Facebook was opened up to high schoolers, we acted like it was the apocalypse, like it had been broken forever. <laughs> uh, well, based on 13th. my activity
2: on Facebook as a high schooler and as a middle schooler, like that's actually pretty accurate. I was, my friends and I were menaces on there. We, we. I look back at my timeline from the time and it was just simply ridiculous. Um, and the difference between then and now is that now, I think nobody posts that casually on Facebook anymore. At least people that I know and people in my generation. I don't know any any Gen Zers who are posting on Facebook like daily updates. It tends to be more rare, professional, or big personal life updates. But back then, I was posting all the time with my friends, and like you said, doing the poke feature. <laughs> um, got Instagram probably like late middle school, early high school always a good experience. And then I think now I'm finally falling behind the times and not trendy anymore because I do have TikTok, but I never post. And apparently a lot of people post TikToks like every day simply could not be me. I don't have the energy for that. And so I sometimes watch TikToks on like cooking or personal style or something, but I'm definitely not on there as much as I should be as a Gen Zer.
1: I think I might be a little bit worse than Rachel on this. I'm like the older Gen Z. I probably shouldn't be a Gen Z. Definitely not a millennial. Um, But I joined Facebook around 13, I think to the day of when they were like, high schoolers are now allowed on. So I graduated middle school and like hit the age cutoff. I was like, I can join Facebook now. This is me being an adult. Um, I treated it like I treat Twitter now, which is just like a live blog of random feelings. Um, But I actually don't use a lot of my social media as much anymore um, unless it is to advertise my dog. Like, I truly spend most of my time on social media advertising my dog or, like, randomly annoying people with GIFs. Like, I'm not the most qualified on social media, but I do consume it as entertainment. Like, for me, social media is not about connecting with people as much as it is, like, looking into other people's lives and gaining entertainment value out of it.
0: Well, a lot of the stuff that's being debated now, and again, I guess I'm dating myself. I, I just feel like for those of us who were on social media back in like the the aughts, is that what we're calling that decade? Um, <laughs> a lot of this stuff we learned way, way back. So like going back to the fact that your wall was originally just an open sort of digital whiteboard people would put really obscene stuff, like just vandalize other people's pages. And then, you know, it was probably around like 2006 that I first learned, because I did the same thing with Facebook originally. Now it's just like, Stuff of my work and like I'm so lame, you know, like my dinner or whatever. I'm that person at at this point on Facebook. Back in the day, yeah, exactly. I treated it a lot like Twitter. And I learned the hard way, you know, if you just put whatever you're thinking at any given moment, you throw some political hot take, you might end up in some flame war with the person. And it's actually kind of miserable. I mean, I learned that in like 2006. Anyway, uh, you both are now, you know, as you both mentioned, you're like sort of. It, like edge into gen z i guess so you know you're not in high school you don't know literally what they're doing but you're a lot closer to those people than i am you know what's your sense of what is truly hot today social media wise
1: hmm. i feel like for me the biggest thing i've noticed and like the biggest thing that i've re- like spend time at work learning is that gen z and me are not alone in thinking that like social media is the new form of entertainment. It's like a second screen to scroll on. Um, My parents used to hate me for it, but I would always be on social media, like scrolling through Instagram during TV commercial breaks. Do you own a
0: TV now, by the way?
1: I do. I did not turn it on the first year I owned it um, because I was way more comfortable, like second screening, Netflix on one half of my computer, and then like yeah. Twitter on the second half. My TV is not as well used as like my parents or even some of my older friends who really love having that screen. For me, it's just there.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I don't own a television, but that's not a boast because my screen time has just moved to. Yeah, yeah it's, it's on, on my computer devices. now. <laughs> my kids love um, and and to it just we're talking social media. Uh, it's so funny how much it's opened everything because um, it used to be there were a few kid shows and you took your pick of what was presented to you. Now, YouTube, the world is yours. They love tractor videos. And I don't mean like produced shows about tractors. I just mean literally videos that are 20 minutes of a tractor in a field with like no narrative or anything. They are obsessed. It's like,
1: It kind of sounds like me as a kid. Like, I think when YouTube came out, I watched all of the weird cow music videos and like the dogs just pretending to talk for hours on end, just because it was entertaining to me in a way that like the news or like Grey's Anatomy
0: was not. (laughs) Well, we've come a long way from, I suppose, a dramatic hamster, or maybe we haven't. I don't. (laughs) Anyway. Dramatic hamster like brought
2: back like dramatic oh, memories. I completely yeah. forgot about dramatic hamster. Oh my gosh, he's I making a know. comeback.
1: Maybe really? maybe it's because I live a little bit on Tumblr, but like he's very popular on Tumblr. Is he still Tumblr. alive. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's
2: replays, but he's very popular on some parts of the internet. <laughs> No, I was never, I was never like a tractor or like cat or hamster video YouTube person. But when I was like in middle school and early in high school, I taught myself how to do my makeup like entirely off of YouTube. And I got very experimental with it. Like I would go into school in like eighth grade wearing like electric blue eyeliner that I learned how to do from YouTube. Not a good situation, but it ended up being that I watched enough that I got fairly good at it and was self-taught. And like later on in high school, I actually got paid to do people's makeup for prom and stuff sometimes. So it was, it was pretty cool to be able to learn a skill like that just based on the internet when I probably before YouTube might've had to pay for a class or something if I wanted to do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I learned art off the internet. I used to take art classes when I was little, but I stopped taking them when I was in high school. YouTube was where I learned that I liked it again because it was like, that was my form of entertainment versus trying to figure out where I could learn that on TV and get bored. I could watch five minutes and know how to do something. But makeup was huge. still is on the internet. Like I think a lot of young girls get to at least understand what eyeliner and mascara is and like what you can do with it and how you've done it very, very wrong um, through YouTube. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't, all my friends watched YouTube for makeup. I didn't. Went to college. My to date best friend, like sat me down and she's like, you do know that there's an entire part of the internet that teaches you how to put on eyeliner. And I was like, I feel very embarrassed that someone had to come to my dorm room and tell me this, but also, hey, at least other people learn through the internet. And now I get to learn through it too.
0: Oh, the, the amount of information that's available. I mean, uh, as someone who's sort of on the I guess I'm kind of in the last generation that has firm memories of a world without internet at all. We had a, a Macintosh computer that had no network connection of any kind when I was a kid. And we're all sort of so there's so much anger and acrimony about the internet and all that stuff. Uh, but it it's kind of well to remember now and then how different the world was before we had that kind of information access. I mean, one thing I remember, and this is kind of just a small example of many, but I was really into English Premier League soccer when I was, whatever, seven, eight years old. And to even know sort of what the standings were or whatever of a sport in another country, who'd won the game that week was really difficult. I would get physical magazines and learn about things sort of a month after they happen. I mean, this sounds like, I don't know, uh, something out of the early 20th century. And we forget how, uh, how quickly things changed. And now, you know, if you're into soccer or whatever, think about how easy that stuff is to access. And that's kind of a trivial example, but that's just true of information generally, thanks to where we are now.
1: I think that also really influences how like Gen Z views the internet. Um, Cause like, I think I am the year that became digital natives. So like I'm born in 96, the internet existed basically my entire childhood in some capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, But for us, cause we're so used to just that access of information. It takes a lot. mm, It takes a lot to get us entertained. Like, for us when we can just instantly know what actors on tv or like who plays for manchester united or like what team got tom brady this year if it's not the patriots like if all of that's instantaneous it takes 10 times more to make us want to watch tv or like 10 times more to make us want to like sit on your video for five minutes um i was actually reading a couple days ago and this was super cool it's gen z uses social media and the internet to kill time in a way that no other generation does. Like, they rank that above connecting to friends and family. They rank that above using it for information. The internet for them is, like, happy, fun times. Like, what can I do to waste time, not do what I'm supposed to have fun and, like, avoid my homework? (laughs) Well, and well, it's like a radically large thing, like 61% of them just want video content online.
0: That's can, crazy to me. I can kind of feel the way my own habits have changed like that. It is funny. So I, I just have to note. So you were born, I think, two years after that famous NBC morning show uh, clip that makes sense. <laughs> it's called the Internet. And we'll find out what that is after the break. Um <laughs> You know, I grew up uh, with uh, the San Francisco Chronicle. It's sports section. was called the Sporting Green. It probably still is. Literally printed on like green newsprint. I still remember opening that out um, in front of me on the floor as a kid. And it was a pretty limited thing. You could read it in, I don't know, 20 minutes. And then that's it for your sports information. Now, if there's a topic I'm interested in, you know, you can really spend an indefinite amount of time on your phone looking at it. Well, Kier, let's turn to your great piece uh, for Fortune for a few minutes. It's called, To Protect American Innovation, We Must Let Websites Keep Moderating Their Own Content. And you discuss the slate of antitrust bills that are currently pending in the House uh, and how one of them, especially, the American Choice and Innovation Online Act, Uh, might negatively affect content moderation. Um, I'd love to hear you elaborate on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wrote that piece mostly because I was really struggling to figure out what the interplay between antitrust and content moderation was, especially with all these legislative proposals. I'm of the mindset that antitrust proposals should not affect content moderation and content moderation proposals should not be used as antitrust legislation. Like they're two separate policy entities, but looking at the house judiciary bills, I was looking at these bills, especially the American choice and innovation online act, not to be confused with the new one, which is the American innovation and choice online act. Um, I was looking at the first one and seeing that they were taking this principle of like non-discrimination to stop companies from disadvantaging other competitors. So like you run a marketplace, maybe don't put all of your own products ahead of other competitors was kind of the end goal of this legislation, but the way it was written, it was making it impossible for online businesses and websites to discriminate between what they called similarly situated business users, which in like normal speak is like a cloud computing service that hosts websites can't discriminate between similarly situated business users. And that might not have anything to do with Complying to their terms of service, so at its extreme, it could render the terms of service and community guidelines susceptible to like harmful content, harmful websites, all of this stuff that, as it stands, a lot of the internet gets to be protected from. Um, and I was really worried that it would ruin the balance between online speech and um, and free expression and online safety, because like at its extreme, the average user of like insert social media here cannot be treated differently from bad actors under this bill. So like if bad content that threatens public health, national security, vulnerable communities makes it online, that might be okay under the house judiciary package. And that, that really worried me because I want to make sure that content moderation is not negatively affected by antitrust legislation. And it kind of felt like it wasn't even being considered in the process.
0: I think uh, Zoe Lofgren might have been a lone voice in the actual debates over this. She noted that, um, say, Alex Jones, like InfoWars, that's a business. So their app or their podcast would fall into what you're talking about uh, as something that gets uh, carriage privilege under the law, potentially. And then um,
1: all of those weird... Influencer type businesses, not weird in the sense of like what they do is weird, but in the sense of influencers Actually, businesses.
0: are businesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I caught your crazy beat. <laughs> ones are too. Turns out they have merch. Um, yeah,
1: like Infowars has a store. They're a business. PragerU store business. Like even normal people online are now businesses. Like Charlie D'Emilio, TikTok influencer. Of like a couple hundred million or whatever amount of followers she has, business, whatever they say can't be discriminated against. But what happens if what they say is so harmful, subjectively, under the like under the new legislation? What would happen is something we're not talking about. And I really thought it was important that we think about the fact that proposals could really mess with us.
0: Um, side. Question. Actually, when I was in private practice, I did a lot of weird entertainment law in Los Angeles. And I had one client who was constantly getting in trouble with the platform because basically what he did, he was a broker between products um, who wanted to advertise surreptitiously and celebrities, basically getting product placement on social media accounts. But without noting that there was any kind of um, money changing hands, which some of the social media websites are you know have rules against that sort of thing. Um, I think even like the FTC looks askance at it. Maybe I'm way behind. Maybe they're like already cracking down on I don't know the rules. And the UK rate, was. Yeah. So how literate do you guys feel you are? And how literate do you feel your peers are about like everybody's got an angle, everybody's got their grift. When you're on social media and you pull up Connor McGregor's Instagram and he's hawking a whiskey, it's like He doesn't just love that whiskey. You know what I mean? Like just wanted to tell the world about it in 12 distinct Instagram posts. I mean, how do you feel about that whole environment?
2: I feel like Gen Zers tend to be relatively aware and cynical about it. Like speaking for myself, if I go through somebody's Instagram page, it's really easy for me to tell which posts in general are sponsored and which are not. And That changes, I guess, or there's a gradient relative to the amount of fame somebody has sometimes. But for example, if there is a girl who I know personally, and she starts posting content about how much she loves this particular protein powder, and most of her other posts are just like her hanging out with her friends, I can infer that she just doesn't love that protein powder that much, you know, organically from the bottom of her heart she's probably getting paid in some way or another to promote the protein powder. And so I feel like most people can notice that, but I think with that cynicism, a lot of Gen Zers just don't care that much anymore, or they're not, they're not necessarily actively trying to not, you know, be touched by this advertising. Like they notice that it's there, but they're not going to be like, oh, I would never look at this because somebody is advertising it and it's clearly an advertisement. I feel like with myself and a lot of other younger people, I know it's like, all right, maybe I'll look into this product and like, The fact that this influencer is is peddling it doesn't mean that I'm going to buy it. But if other people, you know, on social media who are more unbiased and who aren't getting paid and if other reviews on the Internet say that it's a good product, I might still get it. So there's a whole system of verification that people will do, you know, with social media and with the Internet other than these sponsored posts. Um, But I think most of us know them when we see them.
0: And with that, let me take a sip of this delicious Pete's coffee. Pete's started (laughs) out of Berkeley, California. A nutty, wonderful, it's it's almost a sunshiny taste I get when I have my first sip of Pete's in the morning. Kier, please go ahead.
1: (laughs) Well, I was going to just add on to Rachel is like social media. It really is a place where we go to shop sometimes. I feel like Gen Z, we grew up with affiliate links of like, influencer here is like, buy my makeup or buy this makeup I really like via this affiliate link so I can get some form of commission off of it. We grew up with like hashtag spawn and hashtag ad and agencies and bureaucracies dedicated to consumer protection are only now catching up. But we, I mean, as long as I've been on Instagram, I've seen a sponsored post and that's really not stopped my experience. If anything, it's made me a much more social media focused shopper. Um, there was, there's a study that basically says that the majority of Gen Z, in fact, almost all of it, it's like a statistic in the 90%, like the 95th percentile, basically going Gen Z uses social media for shopping inspiration. That's how they buy stuff. And I know that to be true because my Instagram bookmarks is just clothes. I think that are awesome. Cause they're like ethically sourced sustainably this, that I wouldn't have learned if like, The people I followed didn't post about them because of an ad. For me, it's kind of like the new commercial break, those sponsored posts. I'll like scroll for a little bit on TikTok or I'll scroll more consistently on Instagram. I don't like TikTok ads because mine don't really know who I am considering the videos I watch. Um, But like my Instagram really knows that to get my money and to get my dollars, they have to show me like sustainable, Traditional fashion, in the sense of like cute dresses, cute pants that look like they belong in the nineteen sixties, and I will totally bookmark them. Maybe not buy them, but I'll totally bookmark them and then go onto the website a couple of times and see if I like can afford this lifestyle.
0: Um, that's fantastic. Uh, to, to kind of tie it back to your article again a little bit. I mean, to what extent, um. Have you seen platforms distinct content moderation policy serve as a concrete differentiator um, for for that market with your peers? I mean, what I'm getting at is do platforms pay a price for allowing harassment and hate speech or noxious material um, in like a concrete way that you've seen?
1: I'm not so sure I've seen the like noxious speech, harassment, and hate speech, but I have seen content moderation really affect where people go to view things. Um, there's currently like an organic movement on TikTok and YouTube where creators are constantly talking about, I'm not going to monetize this for X, Y, and Z reasons in the community guidelines, or my content got demonetized or taken down for these reasons. And I want to talk about it because I think co- like both the creators and the content moderation guidelines are becoming a part of a greater conversation of like what's culturally appropriate. Um, this morning, I saw a girl talk on TikTok about how how she dressed in a video for her felt normal, but for content moderation purposes, worried TikTok that she was underage, and she's like, "I'm 25. This is weird to me that I'm I look like I'm doing something wrong." because I'm 25 and I got flagged on content moderation for looking underage and dressing inappropriately for an underage person. I think we need to have a conversation because like what I was wearing is nothing like what my nieces wear. And if my nieces wear it around other people, maybe we need to have a conversation on like what our kids dress like. I'm seeing a lot more of that. Like I'm seeing a lot more conversations of like on YouTube, somebody gets demonetized and somebody going Well, why did they do that? Now there's an entire subculture of YouTube videos explaining why people get quote unquote canceled. Um, And they're talking about why certain influencers might not be friendly for advertisers or why certain influencers might not be friendly for users even. And that's why they're getting taken down. I think at least for me, it's becoming a lot more community conversations about what's important in content moderation. And I really wouldn't I wouldn't have it any other way. I think people like us know what's best about our communities online and having us have the conversations is way more important than a legislative proposal coming in and being like our subjective viewpoint is way more important than you, the person who consumes the content.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I would say, I would echo that I've seen a lot of the same content on demonetization and people sort of taking agency and trying to unpack why they got demonetized, why a certain video of theirs got demonetized, et cetera. And then beyond that, I do think that, you know, levels of content moderation can be a substantive differentiator. Like, for specific purposes or for specific segments of the population. Like a lot of parents are trying to gradually expose their kids to social media in an age appropriate way. And so when they're deciding what's appropriate, content moderation, I think can be really important. Um, I've seen this with some of my family members and their exposure of their children to social media and the internet. And like, even for example, um, I'm religious. I have other friends who are religious and there's some content that we wouldn't want to see on social media. And so some of my friends will like avoid social media websites That don't moderate as much for like nudity versus some of my friends don't care, and so things like that can be important, and then as well, just responsiveness to harassment because I have friends who have been harassed or threatened on websites like Twitter and other social media networks, and I think that it can be a huge relief when if somebody is being threatened, that is taken down quickly or it's addressed expediently versus on some other platforms. Like it just wouldn't be addressed at all. And for example, if somebody is getting docs, like their address is out there and somebody could, you know, threaten them, threaten their family. If that's not taken down, that's a huge problem for their experience.
0: Well, I feel like you both have, have, uh, tied me into the last thing I want to get into very well. Um, let's talk Facebook again. I, it's so funny, they, kind of at the start and at the end, they can't be avoided. Um, and yet, I, I really like The Verge's Nalai Patel, what he says. Um, he, he likes to say that Facebook's greatest trick is convincing people other social networks don't exist. And he, he means that in the sense of the amount of attention that it sucks up and the amount of uh, news press it gets and the fact that we're talking about it and that that seems out of proportion to the amount of time that people actually spend on it. There's a famous Pauline Kael quote that she never actually said. It's apocryphal. That was basically about how she didn't know Nixon was elected or didn't expect Nixon to be elected because she didn't know a single person who voted for him. She did not actually say that, to be clear. And yet she's gotten it pegged to her. I, I don't know. Anyway... Um, you know, maybe their people are spending lots of time on Facebook and they're just not the people that I know anymore. Um, I think, uh, boomers get a lot of the blame here, maybe, um, anyway, I think Patel's insight is a sound one. Um, Facebook gets so much attention, even though it's way past its prime, even like with my friends at this point, um, you know, I can't even imagine kind of where it is with Gen Z. Um, without us attracting like an age discrimination lawsuit. I mean, what is going on with that? I mean, do you guys think Facebook warrants the amount of attention it's getting or is this kind of a a wild moral panic or what's going on?
1: I think for me, Facebook is useful and not useful, but it's, I think this is unique to me. I have an account I haven't used it other than to delete my like cringy live blogs from when I was 14 um, in years. Like I will log on to Facebook for work. Um, I run NetChoice's social media. For me, Facebook is very much a tool to connect to a very particular audience. That audience, however, is not me because I don't go to Facebook for entertainment. I go to Instagram for entertainment if I'm going to go in their suite of products. I think... Facebook's future, at least on my phone, is going to be on their new content. So, like on WhatsApp and Instagram, is it going to be the blue background Facebook with the timeline? I struggle to see how that captures my attention, but I'm a very visual person. So, I love video content. Like, I love video content. I love GIFs. I love things that take my hyperactivity and just let me stare at it (laughs) that doesn't make Facebook for me but I think that actually to your point shows that Facebook's not for everybody but Facebook is a competitor somewhere for a different audience like I have friends who use Facebook every day multiple hours a day and love it because for them it's a way to talk to family friends and talk about their politics amongst their community I use Twitter for that, but I also think I use Twitter for that because I live in Washington, D.C. My friends in California use Facebook for that because like Facebook is where they know their family and friends follow them and no external third party is going to run in and be like, your opinion's wrong and this is the reason why. So Mm -hmm. for them, it's like a safer space to share their updates and everything. Um, For me as a social media advertiser, though, like Facebook's my favorite platform to advertise on I just intuitively love how their ad manager works I love how I can promote messaging on it it's fun for me but that's again the entertainment value like I need to be really really entertained while working in a social media um so that's why Facebook works on that end but as a user not so much (laughs)
0: It's such a fun little, and I'm. I, this is not you saying this. I, it's it's the reaction I get from hearing you you speak, but it, it's this bizarre thing. You know, one thing about the, the the ivory tower world or like DC or, or I've always lived in California, so I, I actually live in the Pauline Kale world of the coasts, um, and there's a lot of emphasis on respect for other cultures which is awesome um one thing i've kind of noticed over the years many years is there's this missing understanding that at this point uh kansas um is kind of a different culture from you if you live in the bay area um and that it's also a different culture and it's really interesting to hear you use the word safe space in the context of facebook of like people who can can talk without because <laughs> one of the things about Twitter that is tough is any random person can come just swoop in and like start hammering on your opinion. That's so funny. I've never thought of, of Facebook. My Twitter way.
1: was private for a really long time for that reason. I mean, I went to college in California um, and I worked in theater. So like <laughs> I really privated all of my social media accounts because they were weird. When I moved to D.C., the culture necessitated my Twitter became public.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's just it's interesting. I mean, it's the whole debate we're having where um, and I'm not I'm going to try not to take a position here, but just describe both sides. You have one side that's basically saying um, disinformation is this huge problem. And then the other side that's basically saying, OK, so what you basically have a problem with is that uh, average people are talking to each other on social media. And how dare they? Um, and we're trying to navigate that um which you know does lead me into to a question i have about all of this hoopla with the facebook files and everything um you know we're having a big talk about um uh, i really i hope this label doesn't stick because i think it's kind of fallacious on several levels even if you think social media is pernicious sort of the it's big it's the new big tobacco um we're kind of hitting this Uh, think of the children, moral panic moment. So obviously I've just showed my hand that I think it's gone too far, but that said, you know, social media in general, what do you guys think of these arguments that it is harmful, that it gives people, uh, you know, especially teen girls, body image issues, you know, Kira, you just talked about it's It's kind of the way that people spend their time and um, how, how worried should we be?
1: Do you guys remember when video games were like the big thing to be against? And it was like, video games are destroying society. Our kids are addicted. It kind of feels like that to me. Like it feels like something that growing up in like the anti-video game times of like video games are out to get you. My parents were really, really worried about how many hours I spend on my Game Boy because for them, my Game Boy was teaching me bad values and I distinctly remember this conversation I had with my mom where I just couldn't get how Pokemon was so bad for me. Um, Cause like for her, she thought it was like violent conduct and everything. And I was like, who am I killing in Pokemon? <laughs> um, and so we had like a really honest conversation when I was really little about how like too much video games can be a bad thing, but it had to be an open conversation. And I sat there and I was like, well, you tell me when I've been on it too much. And she's like, I will. And I was like, so then there's no problem. And my mom just kind of stared at me and she's like, yeah, I mean, it's up to me. Um, that's kind of how I feel about this. Uh, it's a greater conversation for all of us to have on what we want, like just the same way that video games are now not constantly in moral panic of being addictive and destructive and promoting nefarious things and being the new big tobacco. Um I think social media is just going to have those conversations and go the same way. I think it is just the new shiny, scary thing. The same way that like video games were, or the same way that, um, or the same way that like in the nineties, all of the parents were really concerned that all the kids were getting addicted to the Disney channel.
0: Like, was that a thing? I missed that Yeah,
1: <laughs> I distinctly remember um, my parents didn't have the Disney channel for a while. Cause like you'll get addicted to it. And I was like, huh?
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. No, I, I didn't hear the, about the Disney Channel thing, but I do remember the video game moral panic too. And I do agree that this was relatively similar. I remember like because I've watched all these old episodes of SVU, like Law and Order SVU, and they had episodes in the aughts about like people going on a murder spree because of a video game. Like they really they were on you know the button of where that issue was going, but that wasn't a common thing to do. People were not going on murder sprees because of a video game. And so similarly, I I think that social media, while it's also a moral panic, it it operates in a slightly different way in that it in many ways is just a mode of communication, another mode of communication that people use. And so in some ways, If you're already having issues related to communication or issues that would come out through communication, social media can exacerbate that in some ways, but it's certainly not the root cause or the root issue. Like my mom was talking to me the other day about like Gen Z social media use actually. And she was like, oh, what about like high schoolers bullying each other on Snapchat And I was like, well, they could bully each other pretty much the exact same way over text because Snapchat, you have to add people to like, communicate with them. So it's not like on Twitter where a random person is tagging you. They like search for a keyword and they found your post and now they're yelling at you for an hour. Like, no, you, you choose who to add on Snapchat. It's usually people that, you know, hopefully, and you would have conversations with them just as you would over text, but often also with pictures and videos. And so if somebody is, you know, bullying or harassing you on Snapchat, they would have probably done the exact same thing over text if Snapchat. Snapchat didn't exist. Like they're just using it as an additional method to communicate. And so the issue is kids bullying each other. The issue is not like that Snapchat exists from my perspective. And so I I think that a lot of the onus should be on individuals to like be self-aware and moderate their own social media usage to fit their personal needs, parents to teach their kids about properly contextualizing what they see on social media and having like the interpersonal skills to handle it. Because I do think that in some ways, like social media challenges people in in a way to be more confident in themselves. Like it can be challenging in new ways because Previously, So when people talk about body image, um, body image issues related to Instagram, for example, I think part of the reason that young girls are often, and boys as well, are sometimes experiencing body image issues um, that they would associate with Instagram is because previously before social media, I think a lot of young people are very prone to comparing themselves to others. And before social media, you were only comparing yourselves to like people in your town on social media, you can like intentionally look up people who look better than you or seem to have a better life than you. And you can see all of these people and you're comparing yourself to people all around the world, not just in your town. And I do think that that can be challenging for a lot of people. Um, but I think that that's something that young people can largely adapt to. I grew up in that time. Like I've grown up basically since middle school, like having access to a ton of people's Instagram profiles, being able to see people who looked every sort of way, people who were super glammed up in their Instagram all the time. And there's obviously an impulse to compare yourself. But as I've grown up, I've realized like, there are always going to be people who, you know, have cooler lives or look better than you. And there are always going to be people who are the opposite. And that's true for everyone. And so I think that having those that base of, of confidence and having those social skills, those are useful in any situation, not just on social media. And so I think that while social media can highlight certain problems, it's not like the source. Mm-hmm. I also think the moral panic kind of to jump
1: off of Rachel, it is very much about having those conversations and developing that attitude. Some of my most formative moments with social media was Realizing that as much as people had a better life than I did, and the world can feel like quite alone, there's a hundred other people like me on the internet looking for the same things. Like, it's not just about feeling other than, it's about feeling like part of a community and having the conversations online about body image issues and about like first generation struggles or like what's considered an appropriate school dress code really taught me that I wasn't alone. And there is another first generation American somewhere being like, well, I'm definitely not the standard of beauty, but like there is a standard of beauty out there that like I kind of fit into. And it's, there's, there's more than just magazines. I think the biggest issue with the conversations of like, tech is out to harm teens, is the fact that we are assuming we're not having these conversations as teens, as young adults, as adults, with ourselves, with our parents, with our friends, with our people we trust, our mentors, whoever's in our life to have those conversations. We're assuming we're not doing that. And I think Congress passing legislation to blame tech for harm, is almost pushing a political agenda that could just destroy having those conversations. If like they get, if somebody, this big they gets to dictate what's appropriate and not appropriate, who are we gonna other in that situation? If we're delineating what is and is not like, for some kids out there, it could really hurt them And for some parents out there really looking to help their kids, not having some of this content could really hurt their ability to have a conversation. Like if there aren't other, like if there isn't the body positivity movement, some parent out there is not going to have Instagrams and web forums and social media posts and YouTube clips to have a conversation with their kid and be like, I think your Instagram feed just doesn't show you what's awesome out there. That really worries me at the end of the day.
0: Well, yeah. I think that sense of connection and family values that you just uh, put in that wonderful answer is a, a great note to end on. Actually, um, we we always try to draw out the positive at the end on the tech policy podcast, and sometimes we don't stick the landing. So I think we should uh, we should crown that answer. Um, and and guys, this has been probably the most. Fun episode I've ever done. Thank you so much, both, for coming on. It's been a real pleasure.
1: No, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us.
0: Well, once again, this has been the Tech Policy Podcast. I've been joined by Keir Newfi and Rachel Altman. I am Corbin Barthold. Till next time.
2: The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.